This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I.org, where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Brian Leppard, a Baha'i and a professor of law at the University of Nebraska. He is the author of two books, Rethinking Humanitarian Intervention, A Fresh Legal Approach Based on Fundamental Ethical Principles in International Law and World Religions, and his second book is called Hope for a Global Ethic, Shared Principles in Religious Scripture. I started the interview by asking Brian where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there? Well, actually, I grew up in a number of places. Uh, I was born in Hollywood, California, strangely enough. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, that's only because my mother's regular <laughs> doctor went out golfing when she uh, when she went into labor. So, so the nearest hospital to our our uh, suburb of Los Angeles happened to be in Hollywood. Okay, at the Kaiser Hospital. So, but that, <laughs> for better or for worse, <laughs> is where I was born. But I okay. I then spent the first six years of my life uh, in a little suburb of Los Angeles, okay. uh, Montclair, California. Mm-hmm. But then, when I was six, my father. Uh, who was a music teacher at the time. He was, was, he was a what? He was, he was a one? music teacher, a oh, okay. school music teacher. Mm-hmm. And my mother was a, a speech therapist mm-hmm. in the school system in California. Mm-hmm. But my father met Dwight Allen, who was at the time a very prominent Baha'i and still is in the field of education. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe he was at Stanford, but he had just been appointed dean of the School of Education at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Mm-hmm. And he invited my father to come get a doctorate of education under his supervision at mm-hmm. UMass. Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> I remember vividly we had a little VW bug, and <laughs> <laughs> my dad built a trailer, and we attached the trailer to the car and and moved all the way from one end of the country to uh, Amherst, Massachusetts. So this was in the late 60s? Yeah, or? this was in 1968, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we camped all the way across the country mm. and uh, eventually wound up in Amherst. Mm. And then I spent three years there while my dad uh, received his doctorate, worked towards his doctorate. Mm-hmm. So I have a very uh, strong affection for Western Massachusetts. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then my father got his first job after his degree with a public school system in Northern Virginia outside Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. And that's pretty much where I spent the rest of my childhood. Mm, okay. and, uh, a little uh, development called Dale City, Virginia, which is about 25 miles from Washington. Mm-hmm. And so you went to uh, middle school or junior high school and then high school there? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really enjoyed having access to Washington, D.C. I, mm-hmm. I would uh, take the bus in and 
sit in on Congress just for the fun of it. Oh, really? <laughs> As a child. Yeah. Wow. It was a rather unique experience. So. Yeah. So what happened after high school? Well, then I uh, had to decide where to go to college, mm-hmm. and uh, I wound up at Princeton University mm-hmm. in New Jersey, and uh, had a tough time deciding what to study, but... Uh, because of my ideals as a Baha'i, I had a very strong interest in world peace mm-hmm. and in the development of international law mm-hmm. and international cooperation. So mm-hmm. eventually, I uh, found my way to the field of international relations. Mm-hmm. So I uh, was admitted to the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton, which is actually a special program, um, even for undergraduates. And so my junior and senior years, I was able to focus on international relations generally, but with a specialization in international organization mm. and also international law. Mm. Mm. And then from there, I had to decide what to do. I, mm. I had sworn I'd never go to law school because <laughs> all my friends were going to law school mm. since they had nothing better to do. Mm. And I said, well, that will never be me. Mm. And I really wanted to get out in the world. And fortunately, my senior year at Princeton, I had been able to work out uh, an internship with the uh, representative of the American Baha'i community at the United Nations in New okay. York City. All right. So one day a week I took the train into New York City, mm-hmm. and then that actually led to a job offer from the Baha'i International Community United Nations office. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was very excited to get that offer, so mm-hmm. I gladly accepted. Mm-hmm. And I worked for three years at the Baha'i UN office, Mm-hmm. as a specialist in human rights issues. Mm-hmm. And at that point, then, I, I knew I had to get a real career, simply <laughs> because uh, I knew I couldn't... It would be very difficult to raise a family mm-hmm. uh, based upon the uh, salary of an employee, young employee of a nonprofit organization. Okay. And it was at that point that I began talking to a lot of uh, diplomats at the UN and mm-hmm. other people involved in the human rights field, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out most of them had law degrees. Mm. So there I was, and <laughs> found myself deciding to go to law school after all. <laughs> mm. And uh, so then I, I wound up at Yale Law School mm-hmm. and was there for three years. Okay. Let's backtrack a bit, and then we'll get back to Yale Law School. Sure. You mentioned you, had, you were already a Baha'i in college. Were you raised as a Baha'i? Yes, I was. Okay. Yeah, my parents became Baha'is when I was about a year old. Okay. So I like to joke that's when I became a Baha'i. Okay. Uh, <laughs> now, what was their story in becoming a Baha'i? Well, my father uh, grew up in western Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And ironically, that's where I now happen to live, at least in Nebraska. I live in eastern Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he grew up in a little town in western Nebraska and was raised as a Methodist. But he was very inquisitive about religion. And the first time he heard about the Baha'i faith, strangely enough, was in Sunday school class Mm. in the 1940s in this little town out in rural Nebraska. Mm. Uh, Apparently he had a rather uh, forward-thinking Sunday school teacher who invited the class to study other religions, and a girl raised her hand and said, why have an aunt in Omaha who's a member of a really weird-sounding religion, (laughs) Baha'i? And his teacher said, well, why don't you call her and find out more information? So Mm. she did, and that was the first time my dad had heard about it. And how old was your dad? Well, I think he must have been, that must have been when he was maybe 12 or 13, Mm -hmm. around that age. Mm -hmm. And then he was best friends with 
uh, another young man from Alliance, Nebraska, named Dan Jordan. Mm-hmm. And Dan Jordan uh, went on to become a Rhodes Scholar. They were both musicians. Dan played the piano. My father played the cello. They uh, played in many uh, ensembles together as, mm-hmm. as students. Mm-hmm. But Dan went on to become a Rhodes Scholar, went to Oxford, and he became a Baha'i. And he continued to correspond with my father, encouraging him to investigate the Baha'i faith. Mm-hmm. And as it happened, by this time, my dad was a student at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Baha'is were just completing the construction of the Baha'i House of Worship right next door in Wilmette, Illinois. Mm-hmm. And so uh, my father actually attended the dedication of the Baha'i House of Worship in Wilmette in 1953. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was not a Baha'i, but he was very interested, thanks to his friend and thanks to his early exposure in Sunday school class. Uh, well, then my father traveled to California. Actually, he first traveled around Europe, Seventh Army Symphony. Then he traveled to California, uh, got a school teaching job. That's where he met my mother, who was also a school teacher. Mm-hmm. And he told her about the Baha'i faith, mm-hmm. and she immediately became very excited. Now, she was from a Jewish background. Mm-hmm. She was a very devout Jew, and uh, in fact, she taught religious classes uh, at her synagogue, Mm -hmm. but she immediately uh, responded to the message of the Baha'i faith, and the two of them then investigated it together, and they went to various Baha'i meetings, and they learned more, and really the Baha'i faith helped confirm the belief that they themselves had arrived at, that all the religions teach the same fundamental principles. Mm -hmm. So, as I mentioned, they became a Baha'i when I was about a year old. Okay. And then raised me <laughs> with those same values. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's go back to Yale Law School. You said you were only at Yale for three years. Is, right. Is that a typical... Yeah, that's a typical law school education. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. And I knew I was very interested in international law, um, and so I took as many international law courses as I could. Mm-hmm. And I was also interested, uh, developed an interest at any rate, in tax law. Mm. So I took a number of tax law courses and figured somehow I'd managed to combine these rather <laughs> uh, different areas of interest. Mm. Uh, then I got a job working as a tax attorney in Philadelphia mm-hmm. for six years. But really, at that, by that time, my, my goal really was to become a law professor. Mm. And that was always my dream, having made the decision to... Uh, <laughs> to uh, suffer through and endure law school. Mm. Uh, so now I have a lifetime sentence in law school. <laughs> I'll never get out of it, uh, at least uh, until I retire. So why, was, why were you interested in tax law? What was it about tax law that interested you? Well, I found it interesting at a number of levels. Um, for one thing, it really has to do with basic concepts of social justice, in terms of economic Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well-being. When we think about it, the tax system is one of the major social mechanisms we have to eliminate uh, poverty Mm -hmm. and growth inequalities of wealth. Mm -hmm. And so I was very fascinated by it uh, from that more ethical standpoint. Mm -hmm. And I also discovered, as I studied it, that uh, it's a very challenging uh, field uh, intellectually. Mm. Uh, it's it's very, uh, requires a very uh, analytical mind. Uh, to be a tax attorney, one almost have to be a philosopher. Mm. Uh, and I think that, that aspect of it intrigued me. 
I originally thought about it because I met uh, the husband of one of my colleagues at the Baha'i UN office who was an international tax lawyer. Mm. And so I remember having lunch with him at the United Nations one day and learning about what he did, and it sounded very exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, in his particular job, he was traveling around the world uh, negotiating tax agreements. And as I later learned, uh, when you work for a law firm as a tax lawyer, you don't get to do much, too much traveling. But, mm. but I think it was this, uh, this concern for social justice, fairness, um, even the, the the concept of of trying to come up with a set of rules uh, for taxation that accord with notions of fairness, um, mm-hmm. and also what intrigued me too is the tax law has been used as a means to encourage people to to do good and discourage them from doing bad things. So mm-hmm. I think at all those levels, I found it interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I also, of course, had a long-standing interest in international law based on my, my Baha'i ideals and uh, the fact that the Baha'i scriptures themselves talk about the need to develop uh, a very strong system of international law. Mm-hmm. Did you go directly to teaching f- from law school? No. I, as I mentioned, I worked uh, for six years as a tax attorney. practicing tax attorney mm-hmm. uh, in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So for better or for worse, I was a Philadelphia lawyer, <laughs> uh, and I enjoyed that. But mm-hmm. I also maintained my interest in uh, international human rights law. Mm. was a member of the international human rights law section of the Philadelphia Bar Association. Mm. Uh, continued to do some volunteer work for the Baha'i UN office mm. at the time. So I mm-hmm. uh, managed to keep up with both interests, but I really was looking forward to, to going into teaching. Mm-hmm. And was fortunate to find a job at the University of Nebraska. Mm-hmm. So this is where I've been now for the last eleven years. Okay, very good. And uh, I guess you've written a couple of books. Yes, yes, uh, just a few. <laughs> <laughs> so the ones that are, uh, I think, most relevant at any rate to mm-hmm. uh, to really uh, the high faith and to to world religions generally mm-hmm. are a book uh, first on the international legal rules governing humanitarian intervention. Mm-hmm. Uh, four years ago, I wrote uh, a book called Rethinking Humanitarian Intervention. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has a very long subtitle, but it's a fresh legal approach based on fundamental ethical principles in international law and world religions. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was intrigued by the whole problem of uh, when, if ever, is it appropriate to use military force to aid human rights victims uh, this is a question that's become a very uh, hotly discussed issue mm-hmm. uh, ever since, uh, well, really the early 1990s, um, when we had uh, international intervention in Somalia to help assure the delivery of food supplies during a civil conflict there. Mm-hmm. In Bosnia, when we had uh, not only a civil conflict, but uh, what may have amounted to, uh, to genocide, certainly ethnic cleansing going on. Mm-hmm. And there was a great deal of soul-searching on the part of the global community as to whether uh, it should have acted more forcefully to protect uh, victims of these uh, atrocities. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rwanda was another example where there was a failure to intervene militarily. And, of course, uh, then we had the bombing of Serbia in 1999 by NATO forces in an effort to... Uh, dissuade the Serbian government from uh, oppressing uh, Albanian uh, Kosovars. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so uh, all of these uh, situations, I think, uh, created a great deal of, of controversy regarding the appropriateness of using military force. So I began looking at these legal problems under international law and the UN Charter and quickly realized that the legal issues were very much intertwined with ethical issues, mm. including, for example, is the use of force ever justified ethically? And also, do we ever have an actual obligation, perhaps, to use force to come to the rescue of others? Mm-hmm. And uh, I knew that the religions of the world had a lot to say about these issues. Uh, but very few scholars, certainly coming from a legal background, had looked at what the world religions had to say. So that led me into an examination of the religious scriptures of the world. Mm-hmm. And of course, as a Baha'i, I had a belief at any rate that they taught many of the same basic ethical principles, mm-hmm. but I had not systematically investigated uh, these commonalities. Mm-hmm. So I uh, began doing research, corresponding with many experts on religion around the United States and around the world, and uh, in the end uh, wrote this book which tried to uh, answer some of these legal questions, drawing on an ethical uh, framework that incorporates both uh, ethical principles that have found their way into contemporary international law, but also these common ethical principles in the world religions. Mm. Give us an example of one situation that you could apply these ethical principles from the religious teachings to a particular instance in in the last 10, 15 years. Well, I think, for example, if we take uh, what did occur in Rwanda, and which perhaps might occur and may be occurring right now in Darfur and mm-hmm. Sudan. Mm-hmm. What we see are, uh, are mass uh, murders, rapes, uh, killings of innocent civilians, uh, which may well amount to genocide. Mm-hmm. In fact, as perhaps you know, the U.S. government believes that what's going on in Darfur right now does constitute genocide. Mm-hmm. And in that kind of situation, a very important uh, ethical problem is, uh, do we have an obligation to intervene, to do what we reasonably can to rescue people who are being threatened with death or rape, uh, what, what, what have you? And the scriptures of the world religions are all very much in agreement on this point, mm-hmm. and they're very emphatic about it. Mm-hmm. At first, we do have a very strong duty to rescue others. In fact, anybody anywhere on the planet who is under threat to their very survival. And secondly, the scriptures also, and this was something I found a bit surprising, all seem to allow for the use of some kind of force in these circumstances mm-hmm. for the purpose of rescuing others. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily to rescue ourselves, but to rescue others mm-hmm. as a kind of good Samaritan duty. Can you give me an example? Uh, example of, of a religious scripture, scripture that, that supports the idea of some sort of military force to help those that are... Sure, sure. Well, um, just to give you one example, there's a uh, verse in the Quran, mm-hmm. which is, of course, the holy book of Islam, mm-hmm. which uh, essentially says that uh, if we see women or others 
who are actually men, women, and children uh, who are being persecuted, uh, then we have an obligation to, quote, fight in the way of God uh, to protect them. Uh, and there are other passages uh, as well from, from all the scriptures. To take another example, if we look at the Hebrew scriptures, mm-hmm. uh, we find the affirmation, uh, judge the, this is from the book of Psalms, mm-hmm. judge the wretched and the orphan, vindicate the lowly and the poor, rescue the wretched and the needy, mm-hmm. save them from the hand of the wicked. Mm-hmm. And we even find counsel in Proverbs that says, and this is another quote, Mm -hmm. if you refrain from rescuing those taken off to death, those condemned to slaughter, if you say we knew nothing of it, surely he who fathoms hearts will discern the truth. He who watches over your life will know it, and he will pay each man as he deserves. Mm -hmm. So this verse seems to be saying that we will be accountable before God. Mm-hmm. if we fail to rescue those condemned to slaughter, mm-hmm. based on the excuse that, well, it's not really our business. You know, mm-hmm. We knew nothing of it. So you, fig- that's, you figure that's what's keeping us as a set of nations from doing what we need to do? I think so. And, you know, um, just to also make clear that, you know, based on the research I did on this first book, mm-hmm. I, I, I collected so much evidence of these commonalities among the world's scriptures, including on issues of uh, intervention to rescue human rights victims, that I really felt that uh, that this uh, this evidence deserved to be in a book by itself. <laughs> uh, and so that's what led me to write uh, my second book, Hope for a Global Ethic, uh, Shared Principles in Religious Scriptures, which uh, really examines these uh, scriptural passages in some detail. And... Uh, and absolutely, you know, one of the points I make in that book, uh, both books actually, mm-hmm. is that uh, a, a primary, a foundational moral principle that we see in all the scriptures is that uh, we are all members of one human family, morally. Mm-hmm. And first and foremost, uh, that is our primary identity. Mm-hmm. All the scriptures express this idea of one global family. Uh, they may use different imagery, they may say we're all created as uh, children of one God. They may invoke a concept of oneness, for example, in the Hindu scriptures. Uh, the Baha'i writings, Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, uh, says the earth is but one country and mankind its citizens. So we have this image that we are all citizens of one country, one nation. Uh, so at any rate, no matter what the metaphor, if you will, all the scriptures uh, are emphatic that we are all related morally. We are all members of one family, and so an injury to any family member, even halfway around the globe, uh, we should feel as if it were an injury to our immediate family, and we should act accordingly. So I think you're absolutely right. I think what's keeping us from from acting uh, courageously and effectively in places like Darfur is uh, this, uh, this mental uh, defense that we set up. Well, that's Africa. That's, those people are not like us. They're not members of our family, mm. and so we don't have strong obligations to help them. Mm. The focus of the first book, then, is sort of just the call from the religious scriptures that, indeed, we need to intervene, or what would you well, say? No, the the foc- focus of the first book is on, on legal issues. Okay. Uh, in the course of that book, I do cite a few examples 
uh, from the world scriptures to support similar ethical principles that are now found in international law. But really that book is very much legal okay. in its orientation. And the second book, Hope for a Global Ethic, mm-hmm. uh, published by Baha'i Publishing, really delves deeply into the scriptures themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that book I make the argument that we can actually go a very long way mm-hmm. towards solving the world's problems by looking again with a fresh eye at the world's great scriptures, mm-hmm. and in particular with an eye to seeing these convergences mm-hmm. instead of seeing all the differences that, uh, unfortunately, religionists have been fighting over for mm-hmm. <laughs> so long. Right. And uh, even if we focus on, on the religions themselves, I think we can find uh, many moral principles that will allow us to resolve some difficult dilemmas. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that there will always be a crystal clear answer. Mm-hmm. But one of the principles that I identify in all the scriptures is the principle of open-minded consultation. Mm-hmm. The idea that we can often uh, solve difficult problems by consulting with one another. And that involves an attitude of humility and openness to different perspectives. Mm-hmm. It's only by appreciating those different perspectives that we can uh, come up with a solution that is really ethically uh, sound, uh, but also practical. Mm. So that's another theme that I develop in, in my book, Hope for Global Ethics. Mm-hmm. The, f- the first book that dealt with the legal issues, from what framework were you talking, are you, are you referring to as far as legal issues, the law of the United States, international law? What, yeah, what that did, was where focused you on international law. Mm-hmm. That was focused mm-hmm. in particular on the United Nations Charter, most importantly, Mm-hmm. But also, uh, I looked at international human rights law, mm-hmm. which, of course, is grounded in the U- UN Charter, which right. says that the fundamental purpose of the UN is to promote human rights, mm-hmm. but also in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, mm-hmm. which was adopted by the United Nations in 1948 and has now spawned uh, many, many human rights treaties. And uh, the U.S. is now a party to many of these treaties uh, and is therefore bound by them, at least under international law. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I looked at, really, the UN Charter, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and other international human rights law, and the implications of these ethical principles for how we interpret and apply that international law. Mm-hmm. So just to give you one example, um, the problem is, is that if we look at a lot of these documents, uh, we see contradictory principles. So on the one hand, the UN Charter says that one of its purposes is to promote human rights. On the other hand, it affirms the sovereign equality of all of its members, so it uses this word sovereignty, mm-hmm. and it also asserts that uh, the UN shall not interfere in any matters that are essentially within the domestic jurisdiction mm-hmm. of any country. Uh, and at least historically, that has been understood to include human rights matters. Mm-hmm. So we have, on the one hand, norms promoting human rights, and on the other hand, norms promoting sovereignty, non-intervention in the affairs of other states, not to mention norms that generally prohibit one state from using force against another, with very limited exceptions, like self-defense. But certainly there's no explicit permission for any state to intervene militarily in any other, simply because that other state is committing gross human rights violations. Mm -hmm. You see, this falls within the cracks of the UN Charter. There are no explicit rules 
on so-called humanitarian intervention. And that's why it's given rise to such controversy. And we can see this reflected, of course, also even in the Iraq War, hmm. which uh, has been justified by some observers as a humanitarian intervention, as an intervention to rescue victims of a despotic regime. Although that wasn't the premise. Uh, no, that was, well, not the original premise. That's not the official it premise. Of so it was yeah. a mixture of rationale. Yeah, right? that's true. That's true. But, uh, but now there are, uh, this is one of the primary rationales. And so, mm. again, that's evidently been quite controversial. Right, yes. And it's quite controversial as to whether right. that is legal mm-hmm. under international law. So I didn't, right. of course, I wrote my book before that event. Right my first book, uh, but at any rate, I was trying to resolve some of these contradictions within the UN Charter and other international legal documents by reference to ethical principles based on this idea of the unity of the human family. That's mm-hmm. the first and foremost principle that I uh, rely on mm-hmm. um, in both books, really. Mm-hmm. And in Hope for Global Ethic, I try to, to expand on this idea and demonstrate how it is reflected and uh, articulated uh, in all of the world's great religious scriptures. Mm-hmm. Now, what conclusion do you come to with the first book? Is it just that there is this gray area and that it's the religious teachings that tend to uh, fill in that gray area? or Well, I, I address very specific issues mm-hmm. uh, and try to resolve the gray area. Mm. And I resolve it in light of this uh, ethical principle of the unity of the human family, mm-hmm. uh, which is common both to international law, for example, uh, the very first article of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, says that we should act towards one another in a spirit of brotherhood. Mm-hmm. So right there we have this idea that we're members of one family, even in international law. But then I buttress that and, and show that this international law moral principle is strongly supported by the world's great religions. And I think that gives this idea of the unity of the human family a lot more uh, moral force as well as uh, practical force, the fact Mm -hmm. that uh, you find support for it in all the religions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I address a whole series of difficult legal issues, ranging from the use of force to obligations to intervene. I argue that there may well be obligations to intervene, Mm-hmm. However, uh, those obligations need to be uh, carried out through the legal mechanisms that have been developed mm-hmm. under the United Nations, mm-hmm. uh, and at least from a legal standpoint. Mm-hmm. And so, in a sense, these ethical principles strengthen uh, the mechanisms that we already have in the UN Charter and really urge us to, to comply with those mechanisms. And I look at a whole range of other issues, including reform of the United Nations to make it more effective in protecting people mm-hmm. against genocide and other gross human rights abuses. So I use these ethical principles as a framework to then come up with uh, ideas for practical reforms. So I'm speaking with Brian Leppard, author of Rethinking Humanitarian Intervention, a Fresh Legal Approach Based on Fundamental Ethical Principles in International Law and World Religions. And that's your first book, correct? Yes. And then the second, your second book also is Hope for a Global Ethic. Shared Principles in Religious Scriptures. And that second book is, is the one that's written for a general audience. 
Okay. And so I think most readers will find that second book uh, a little bit easier of a read. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So what's your plans for the future, Brian? Well, um, I'm working on a number of projects, mm -hmm. actually, at the moment, um, both professionally and personally. Mm -hmm. And uh, fortunately, there's been a lot of receptivity to the ideas uh, in my books. Mm -hmm. And uh, Hope for a Global Ethic, for example, has led to uh, an opportunity to uh, co-author a book on uh, the influence of religion and religious teachings on the development of international law, the development of ideas concerning world peace and human rights. Mm -hmm. So I'm collaborating on this new book uh, with two other uh, international law professors mm -hmm. uh, who, having read Hope for Global Ethic, invited me to, uh, to join them on this project. Mm -hmm. um, I also have a number of other uh, book projects, including one on religion and human rights and the positive contribution that religion can make to uh, respect for human rights. Mm -hmm. Uh, so those are a number of the uh, professional projects that I think have been really uh, inspired by my uh, my work, including Hope for Global Ethics. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned some personal projects. Yes. Well, I, uh, I, I'm in the process, actually, of, of writing a book uh, that will be an introduction to the Baha'i Faith for Christians, mm. uh, based in part on my uh, research for, for all of these other books I've uh, had the opportunity to learn a lot from uh, experts in Christianity, mm -hmm. uh, learn a lot about the Bible, and uh, so as a personal project, I felt it might be uh, helpful to uh, to draw on some of those contacts that I've had and uh, and write a book that would be a basic introduction to the Baha'i Faith mm -hmm. for Christians. So that's a, a personal project, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I'm very excited, though, about the potential for members of all religions, and even of no religion, to, mm -hmm. uh, to work together uh, to solve the world's problems by going back to the basic principles in their own scriptures, which I think uh, have a great, uh, great potential to help us grapple with these very challenging issues that we're facing today. Mm -hmm. Now, you had mentioned earlier in the interview that after undergraduate school, you worked for the Baha'i International Community. Yes. Could you explain a little bit of what that organization does? Sure. Well, ever since the founding of the United Nations, uh, the Baha'is have been strong supporters of the UN, precisely because it is an attempt to implement uh, the Baha'i ideal of, of global cooperation. And there were Baha'is, for example, represented at the San Francisco Conference, where the UN was created. But uh, from the very earliest days of the UN, the Baha'is have had a relationship with it. And uh, in particular, the Baha'i, the worldwide Baha'i community has enjoyed uh, a very special status with the UN. It's called a consultative status, meaning that Baha'i representatives uh, may participate in the work of certain UN bodies, including those uh, dealing with human rights issues, mm -hmm. uh, not to mention others as well, such as women's issues. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a very strong presence uh, at the UN, a strong Baha'i presence. And uh, I was hired as a special assistant in human rights, so uh, I researched a wide variety of human rights issues that the UN is dealing with and uh, tried to articulate a Baha'i perspective on those issues mm -hmm. uh, in statements that were delivered to the United Nations at various meetings mm -hmm. uh, around the world. And 
so, uh, of course, that work continues uh, today, and there's a very uh, well-staffed office at the UN. In fact, uh, the Baha'i International Community UN office has won a very impressive reputation among other non-governmental organizations. Mm. So certainly uh, for, for many years, um, for example, other non-governmental organizations have uh, elected the Baha'i International Community to chair the Committee on Human Rights, on which all so-called NGOs, uh, non-governmental organizations interested in human rights are, are represented. Uh, those include organizations like Amnesty International and so forth. So the Baha'is have often chaired that committee, and uh, they have also uh, been elected frequently to chair a committee of religious organizations. So the Baha'i international community has a very high visibility at the UN. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned some statements that you had worked on while you were there to sort of formulate a position. Yes. Could you describe some of those? Sure. Well, these statements... Uh, deal with a wide variety of human rights issues that the UN is concerned about. Uh, for example, the UN has long been concerned about eliminating racism and achieving racial equality. Mm-hmm. In fact, in 1965, it adopted a treaty on the elimination of racial discrimination. Uh, so there have been a number of global conferences uh, on how to eliminate racism. And at the time I was there, which is a long time ago by now, <laughs> They had a Second World Conference on Racism. Of course, now we've had more than that, but uh, I prepared a statement for that conference. Uh, We were very closely involved with the drafting of a UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, and so the Baha'i international community uh, frequently contributed to the draft, uh, at least contributed suggestions regarding the drafting of that treaty, and a number of those statements I helped to to write. Of course, I should make it very clear that... uh, that all of these statements are, uh, although I might have been personally involved in helping to write them, they are statements of the Baha'i International Community and, and ultimately um, are, of course, approved and, and by relevant Baha'i institutions. So they really are you know, the institutional voice of the Baha'i World Community. Um, I also assisted in writing statements on issues involving uh, rights of indigenous peoples. In your press release, for the for the book Hope for a Global Ethic, and you yes. said there's a subtitle to that. Yeah, shared principles in religious scriptures. Yeah, it actually was omitted from the cover of the book, and I think that that might was the problem. Okay. <laughs> if All you right. look on the inside title page, it, it'll okay. be there. But this press release poses a couple of questions here. One is. How then does humanity solve the horrendous problems of terrorism, war, and gross violations of human rights? Do you answer that question in the book? Well, I don't give any nice and simple cut-and-dry <laughs> answers because there are none. Right. But I certainly suggest that by turning to these ethical principles in the world's religions, mm-hmm. we can begin to figure out how to address these mm-hmm. problems, mm-hmm. and in particular through, through consultation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that uh, you know what we find when we delve into the scriptures is really a quite sophisticated set of moral principles. They're all grounded in this idea of the unity of the human family, but uh, they really uh, are quite uh, sophisticated and 
ultimately one concludes there are no very simple answers, but for a good, you know, for a starting point, simple recognition of this concept of the unity of the human family would get us very far. Yeah. And we were alluding to that earlier, you know, right. at least in addressing a problem mm-hmm. like uh, the terrible atrocities going on in Darfur, mm-hmm. at least if we start with the proposition that these victims are members of the same family, that can get us very far right. in, in deciding how do we respond. Right. Um, or, uh, you know, just to take other examples, if we address uh, the roots of terrorism or uh, fanaticism, for mm-hmm. example, committed in the name of Islam, among other religions, mm-hmm. uh, if we understand, first, the principle of the unity of religions and the unity of the human family, mm-hmm. and secondly, if we investigate the Quran, as I try to do in Hope for Global Ethic, to find out what it really teaches about how to treat those who are not Muslims, mm-hmm. we very readily conclude that uh, there is no justification for terrorism committed in the name of Islam. Mm-hmm. The only justification is through perversion of a very few isolated passages, and in the book I do, of course, uh, discuss some of those passages, mm-hmm. but uh, the vast majority of the verses of the Quran uh, very clearly say that uh, it is impermissible, impermissible to use force against anybody who is not themselves an aggressor, mm-hmm. that is to say an innocent civilian. Mm-hmm. And in fact, many of the earliest rules, even of international law involving protection of civilians, uh, were influenced by these Islamic teachings. So, in other words, if we, if we look at these scriptures with kind of this, this, this fresh uh, point of view, um, it helps us to be quite clear about what the roots of these problems are and what the roots are not. Mm-hmm. So I think, for example, it becomes very clear that the problem is not Islam in terms mm-hmm. of dealing with so-called Islamic terrorism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is uh, fanaticism. The problem is uh, really a total denial of the fundamental teachings of the Quran mm-hmm. by those who commit terrorism mm-hmm. in the name of Islam. Mm-hmm. And uh, that helps us identify the source of the problem and then also identify solutions. Mm-hmm. We also see that uh, Christians and Muslims and Jews and Baha'is, we all do share the same fundamental teachings, at least when we go back to our scriptures. Mm-hmm. And you see, that knowledge itself can help us go very far in figuring out how to respond mm-hmm. to many of these problems. Mm-hmm. And at a minimum, of course, it indicates that people of all religions do need to cooperate to solve them. And that the whole world needs to cooperate to solve them. So, Brian, what's your vision of the future for the world? Well, <laughs> it's hard to separate that from my beliefs as a Baha'i. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a Baha'i, I believe, based on the teachings of Baha'u'llah, that in fact the world has a very glorious destiny. Mm-hmm. And Baha'u'llah himself promises that soon will these. Uh, ruinous wars pass away, mm-hmm. and the most great peace shall come. Mm-hmm. So there's a promise that ultimately the world will achieve world peace. Mm-hmm. So my view is colored by that optimism mm-hmm. that I feel as a Baha'i. Mm-hmm. At the same time, uh, the Baha'i teachings are quite clear that the world must suffer uh, so long as humanity turns away from these fundamental moral principles. And currently, 
uh, as we know, mm-hmm. as I just explained, for example, with respect to terrorism. This represents a turning away, mm-hmm. a, a challenge to, and a defiance of these uh, basic ethical teachings. So, in a sense, the Baha'i teachings are also quite uh, realistic, if you will, mm-hmm. about the short-term future, that is to say, we can already see really the breakdown of the existing uh, social order because it fails to fully implement these shared ethical principles. You know, Baha'u'llah said that uh, the winds of despair are alas blowing from every direction, and the strife that divideth and afflicteth the human race is daily increasing. And we see that today, but we also know that if humanity can turn towards these teachings and resolve to work together to promote peace and justice, we can solve these problems, and there will be a glorious future for humanity. So those are my views, too. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Well, Brian, thank you very much. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Brian Leppard, a Baha'i and a professor of law at the University of Nebraska, and author of Hope for a Global Ethic, Shared Principles in Religious Scripture. For a copy of this and other interviews, you're welcome to go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. 